you know, even if you don't win the election on in November, like you've still moved the needle. You've still done a public service. And that is awesome. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, Liberty Liquidators, to another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast, the place where I strive to bring you great conversations about the ideas of liberty. This is the 231st episode of this program. You know what that means, guys? It means you can find the show notes featuring links to all sorts of things which we discuss in the episode over at lionsofliberty.com slash 231. Today's show is sponsored by another great libertarian podcast, We Are Libertarians. If you're a fan of this program, I guarantee you're going to love what Chris Bangle and all the other guys and gals over at We Are Libertarians are doing. Check them out at wearelibertarians.com. My guest today is the co-founder and principal of Evolt Consulting Group, which provides consulting services to candidates for local, state, and federal office. Prior to that, he was a former U.S. Army captain and Iraq War veteran. He has served as director of operations for Run for America, a transpartisan political consulting firm striving to recruit, train, and work to elect a new generation of leaders to Congress. He also ran for office himself as a candidate for Congress in Virginia in 2014, and he most recently served as the campaign manager for Libertarian presidential hopeful Austin Peterson. I'm pleased to welcome in Mr. Jeffrey Carson. Jeff, are you ready to roar? I am ready to rock. Yeah, I'm ready to roar too, man. Rock and roar. Well, we can do it all. There's no (laughs) limits here. That's the great thing about being Liberty guys. You know, there's no rules. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So, Jeff, as I kind of detailed there, you have a lot of uh, history in politics here, most recently in your career. And uh, obviously, you've done a lot of traveling. You've been in the military. I'm sure there's a lot of things that have shaped your political views over the years. So where did that first start? What what first sparked interest in the ideas of liberty for you? Well, Mark, I think I think first and foremost, I just have a certain personality trait, right? That's just innate in me to always question stuff. So, you know, growing up, I was always the kid that would like put up his hand and say, no, you know, I don't know if that makes sense, teacher, you know, or can you explain that a little bit better? So I've just always had that inquisitive nature. And obviously, I took that with me into the military. Uh, that was, you know, the military was really my first big boy job out of college. And, you know, I, I loved serving, obviously, my, I, I spent four good years in, but I certainly questioned a lot. <laughs> and that got me into trouble sometimes. And then, you know, obviously, I, I learned quite a bit when I was in the military. I was overseas most of that time in Iraq and in the Persian Gulf for a bit. But then getting out of the military and traveling a ton and, you know, shit, I, I probably lived almost half my life abroad overall. But then all the traveling and so on and just and just kind of seeing the mindset uh, that I had, comparing the mindset I had when I was in the military uh, versus the mindset that I started to develop once I got out of the military and started traveling and really experiencing you know, life, I guess, to put it simply, a lot of that, that's all shaped me. I've been, I'm constantly being shaped. I feel like. Why did you make that decision once you got out of the military to make, make that conscious effort to actually go and travel around the world? That's something that I try to get people to do. I've done a fair bit of traveling in my time. Doesn't, doesn't look like as much as you have. You've been to over 50 countries. So what inspired you to, to do that, to get out there and see more of the world and not do so in the military uniform, just holding the gun, but to actually do so as a, as a private citizen? The the short answer to that, I think, Mark, is I had questions. You know, I, one of the probably the main driver for actually getting out of the military was 
was not because I didn't like serving. It wasn't because I didn't like, you know, that, that job, the, the last job I had was awesome. I was a ground liaison officer. So I got to brief fighter pilots before they'd fly their, their close air support missions. And that was just cool. That was like a lot of fun. It was cool. It was all over the place. So I liked that aspect of it, but ultimately I got out of the military because I just had too many questions. And I, it's most of those questions, I don't even think I knew what they were at the time. I just knew that there was a lot that I had to kind of sort out when it comes to just life and, and figuring this all out. And, and I had a gut feeling I wasn't going to get the opportunity to figure all that stuff out in the military, you know, in that quote unquote box. So I'll give you a, a perfect case in point example of, of why I traveled, you know, throughout the Middle East, for example, which was one of my trips. I spent maybe two, two and a half months just kind of backpacking throughout the Middle East. Uh, and one of the reasons and I I've to- met a lot of backpackers, Jeff, in my travels, a lot of people backpacking <laughs> through Central America, backpacking through Europe. I, I yeah. don't think I ever met someone who told me that they backpacked through the Middle East. So I'm really interested to hear about that. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to sound like an ass here. I mean, I've done I've done South America and I've done Europe and I've done Asia as well, but not to sound like an ass. But th- that and that's all great. I mean, that was more sort of pleasure versus versus pursuit of like, you know, knowledge or truth or or just kind of learnings. But the Middle East was mostly, at least the idea behind it was to go and learn. And it was because, you know, I, in my military time, I had served in Israel. So I had served along, alongside Israeli defense forces uh, working with their missile defense systems. And then obviously I'd, you know, I'd served in Iraq and, and been a Qatar and Djibouti and kind of all over the region. And, you know, just what we were told and, and the mindset that you have, right, in terms of who the threat is or who the enemy is and why they're the enemy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I just always kind of questioned that a little tiny bit when I was in uniform. And in particular, when I was in Israel, I remember thinking, wow, like the Israelis are really making a good point. They're really making a great case for you know, the Israeli case, if you will. But I knew then that I was only getting one side of the story, obviously, right, because I was working alongside these guys. Sure. And, and I also knew that I had to go and, and, and at some point down the road, at some point in the future, I had to go and see it from the other sides, the, the Palestinian side specifically. So that was one of the things I wanted to do, you know, on that trip. And I ended up actually spending about two weeks in the West Bank and seeing it from that side. And it's it's just, you know, when you see it from both sides, it it uh, it becomes even more complicated and difficult. <laughs> what, what sort of reception did you get from from people in the West Bank or just in the Middle East in general once they realized that you are a, you know, a former U.S. soldier, that you know, you're someone that was in the U.S. military, because I, I, I'm sure there's just a certain level of animosity towards the U.S. military in many countries, just due to the fact that they're seen as the imperial power um, with, with some good reason. I mean, do you get, did you get any sort of animosity, or were people just happy to, to speak to you as a, as a human being and, and not as a soldier? What's interesting, I, when it comes to me just kind of being out and about, obviously I kept that you know, I kept that on the down low. I wasn't uh, broadcasting the fact that I was so you you know, military. Wearing, you weren't wearing a U.S. Army T-shirt or anything. Yeah, that's a fact. And that's just something that you kind of are taught to do. Like, you just don't broadcast that stuff. So uh, you don't wear, like, America Rocks T-shirts. You know, <laughs> it, it doesn't, not just in the Middle East, but just in general when you're traveling. You know, just try to kind of not paint yourself to be a target. But, but no, specifically in the Middle East, obviously I didn't mention that, generally speaking. But when I, when I met people that I either you know, was traveling with or, you know, was trying to learn from or, you know, would have a cup of coffee with, et cetera, mostly nonprofit folks like NGO folks. They were actually like they were like flabbergasted. They were like, who is this guy? Like, why is this guy here? Like, this just doesn't compute. This doesn't make any sense. They, they actually really appreciated the fact that I was there, but they just it just didn't compute for them. They were like, you know, they were super confused at first. But uh, but I, I, they all everyone I can remember, they all warmed up to me and, and uh, I learned a ton. 
while I was over there from not just the, the local Palestinians, but also the NGO folks as well. Is there one specific area or like one specific topic that you specifically had your views changed on you know, by, by speaking to other Palestinians and by, by speaking to other people in the Middle East that were more directly affected by uh, U.S. foreign policy and by, by you know, our relationship with Israel and that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess I would say that going into that trip, I was generally speaking very pro-Israel, just pro – if you think about like the, the rights kind of infatuation with Israel and their stance, I wasn't quite – like that. But I was very much like Israel has a right to exist and defend itself. And, you know, the bad guys are terrorists, et cetera, et cetera. And then going and seeing this for myself, just seeing what the Palestinians had to live through and, and trying, trying to put myself in their shoes, even if it was just for a week or two, it, it totally changed my perspective on the entire situation. I, I'd say at this point, I'm just very much conflicted. I, I know, I, I know a little bit, I know enough to be dangerous from both sides, kind of how how the situation works and bottom line is nobody's innocent you know both sides have great points and as an american as someone that is not israeli or is not palestinian i can't tell these guys how to do it or how to live or how to fix it i hope that they do obviously but i just i can't argue from one side or the other effectively like it's it's an unwinnable argument for me i just hope they can figure their shit out but but real quick mark one one thing that i did see with my own eyes which was just incredible to me you know, I, I worked on a Palestinian, like it was a per permaculture farm. Uh, it was actually manned mostly by, by, you know, Westerners that were kind of traveling through volunteering, but it was a permaculture farm in the West Bank. And I found out just from being there for like a week that, you know, the, the Israelis actually control the water into the West Bank. So the Israelis actually would shut off the water to this town for days at a time, sometimes weeks at a time in the height of summer in the Middle East. So if you can imagine being a farmer, and, you know, you've got crops and it's it's July, August, you know, hot as hell, 110 degrees outside. And all of a sudden your water gets shut off. There's no phone call you know, that you can make. There's no let me go talk to my local X, Y or Z position, you know, personnel or whatever. They were just stuck with it. And so that's I, I couldn't believe it. But, you know, seeing is believing, obviously. Yeah, Jeff. And something you mentioned earlier is that you, you felt conflicted about the conflict now as opposed to you know having a you know more pro-israel side of things and but i think any reasonable person that that looks at the situation and actually tries to understand the nuance and history of it you have to be conflicted about it or or you're not looking at it right because it's not black and white it is a nuanced issue there are good guys there are bad guys that have been involved in this on both sides of things and there are a lot of people who should have their rights defended in the middle east there are a lot of bad people that are violating rights in the middle east and those people exist on both sides of this conflict and it's it's never as simple as the american media likes to portray and and a lot of that bias is due to the fact that the american media are americans so you can only see it from <laughs> one sort of perspective from our perspective and, and our perspective is that mostly that israel is an ally of america they're a democracy they're a free country therefore we should side with them and that, that really just taints our view not only on this issue but but on not only on foreign policy either really on on everything that we do in, in political life and in political communication and political communication is is the area that you have found yourself as an expert in you know providing your services so how are you able to take your world experience and, and come back and, and start applying this kind of stuff and applying your perspective to the the actual realm of practical politics well first mark i just say yeah you, you nailed it well Spot thank you on. i like when i nail things yeah <laughs> I would actually say it's not it wasn't just the travel or the living abroad or you know the military experience. I mean I you know 
when I got out of the military, I, I traveled a whole bunch. And then I went back to school, got an MBA. Then I spent a handful of years in the, you know, the corporate world. That's not that much fun, to be honest. Uh, and then I, I said, you know, the hell with it and ran for office, kind of just jumped in headfirst without any clue what I was doing because I knew that I just wanted to get in, in the game. You know, I, I was sick and tired of sitting on the sidelines. I just I didn't know if that was the right play, but I knew that at least doing that was going to get me in the game, you know, potentially. So and then followed that up with my work at, you know, Run for America, working at a retail political consulting firm. Uh, and then starting some, my own company now. So the long story short is I, I've kind of worn many, many hats and I've done a lot of different things. I don't know if I've ever done anything super well, but I've done a lot of different things. And that in and of itself kind of obviously, you know, breeds experience. And so all of that experience and expertise actually helps tremendously with, you know, starting this my own thing, right? This this consulting firm. I actually have a business partner, Justin Phillips. I should mention him. He's actually the brains of the operation. I'm just, uh, and you're the I'm brawn, just the good, huh? I'm the good <laughs> looks. You know, I just kind of sit here and hang out, and he does all the work, and it's great. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But you should have him on sometime too. He's a good dude. Yeah, de- definitely open to that down the road. Now, now, Jeff, I'm curious about your 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 run for Congress in um in 2014. What what inspired that specific run, and then what did you learn from it? Obviously, you've been able to apply a lot of what you learned running from office to your to the advice that you give to other candidates. Well, at first, I'd call it uh, my ass kicking for Congress. I mean, I I got walloped, man. Jeez, Louise. I, that's kind of the point, though. I mean, maybe it's not the yeah. point, but but you know, if, for a political campaign, I mean, I talked to Michael Pickens, who I'm sure you're familiar with, a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. And, and he basically yeah. said, you, if you're going to run a campaign, you should plan to fail at least twice before before even thinking about winning, because you can't possibly learn what you need to learn and lay that groundwork without actually failing and learning from your failures. Well, that, he he. He gets it, man. Mike, Mike gets it. I actually, it's funny you mentioned his name. I hung out with him a few weekends ago. He did a training in Virginia and I was fortunate enough to be a part of that training, uh, an attendee of the training. And it was just fantastic stuff. So to, to give a plug to Mike Pickens, if anyone out there is listening and you're thinking about running for office at some point in the future, reach out to Mike Pickens and go get his training. Because first and foremost, any of my clients, I'm going to direct you that way as well. I'm going to say, go get trained by Mike Pickens, get his four to five hour initial training. Promise you, you won't regret that. Absolutely. But. And we'll, I'll link to uh, both my interview with Michael Pickens and a link to his organization in the show notes for today's show. So we'll get all our plugs in. Yeah. What, what did I learn? Shoot, man. I, <laughs> from, from my race, I, I, I learned a ton, obviously. So I, first and foremost, yeah, what, what Mike, what Mike uh, says is, is you gotta, you gotta set expectations that are, I don't want to say realistic, I think the better word is pragmatic. You know, when you set expectations that are that are astronomically like, you know, the the odds of hitting them are so high that it's just kind of silly, then you're just not doing yourself any favors. And yeah, one of the one of the first things I tell my clients is you got to first and foremost know you're in this for the right reasons. If you are in this for the right reasons, like deep down in, in your gut, in your heart, then at the end of the day, yeah, you want to win that election. But like if you if you run a great race and you make it competitive and you you move the needle and you get people engaged and you give people a reason to give a shit again, you know, voters a reason to get back in the game again. You know, even if you don't win the election on in November, like you've still moved the needle, you've still done a public service. And that is awesome. So if you're in it to move the needle and to, you know, to to perform that public service. And, you know, you know your, what your reasons are. That, and, and for everyone, they're different reasons, right? It might be you want a better future for your kids. 
It might be because the debt scares the hell out of you and you're just sick and tired of mismanagement. It might be for a local race, you know, traffic issues, I mean, whatever it is, just if you know you're doing it for the right reasons, then everything else is just 10 times easier. And that's a good point, Jeff, too, because, I mean, you could have easily just decided you wanted to be a congressman and adopted a bunch of, you know, mainstream Republican neocony positions and, you know, made friends with a lot of the local GOP guys and, and had them really push you as the next GOP congressman. You could have easily done that and maybe even won a race that way. But would you have actually moved a needle or changed anything? Whereas if, if you ran a principled campaign, as I know you did, you know, even if you might not win that race. But if you inspire 20 or 30 people into activism, that's a lot more valuable than if you won that race just by dressing yourself up as something more acceptable. But well, I'll expand on that, Mark, because you make a great point. One, I did have some GOP folks coming to me, you know, local folks that were so like, not, hey, it's not man. that hypothetical. <laughs> no, they were like, hey, dude, like, you know, come on. They're like, you really going to run this libertarian? Like, come over here. We'll make sure you get the nomination. And then and then you can actually have a shot. And I was like, I was like, I, I even had some of my advisors at the time telling me like I should I should do that. And I was like, guys, I hear you. I get it. And I understand where you're coming from. But I've already committed to X. So so forget all the nonsense. Like I've already committed to running as a libertarian. So I'm not going to go back on that. I'm doing this. Let's let's rock and roll. Plus, in my gut, I wanted to be, you know, the guy that was thumbing his nose at the establishment. I didn't want to run as a GOP guy or a Dem. I wanted to run as a libertarian. I was actually the first libertarian to run in Virginia 8 technically, right, with an L next to his name on the ballot. So that was kind of cool. But I, I will tell you that had I run as a, first of all, I live in a, or I ran and, and currently live in a district that's a D plus 16, meaning it's a heavily, heavily blue district. So even if I had run as a Republican, I'm, I'm not winning this race. The guy that ran as a Republican ended up getting, I think, 32% of the vote or something. So he got crushed too. But what I, what I would tell you is that if, if I had run as a GOP guy, you're right, I wouldn't have moved any needles. In fact, I, you know, the GOP probably would have been sick of me at the end of it because I would have been too, quote unquote, liberal for them, right, on, on particular policies. And that would have been it. I probably would have gone back to the corporate world and I'd be doing that kind of stuff right now. How boring it, would that have been? Oh, my God. Shoot me in the face, <laughs> right? Like, no, thank you. But because I ran as a libertarian, it's actually interesting. After my run, that organization, Run for America, you know, I had some a mutual friend who actually founded that organization, and they were interested in in bringing me on board because of the fact that I ran as a libertarian, because of the fact that I did something you know crazy, and because I, yeah, I got my ass kicked. But they were like, that's an experience that that not a lot of people have that are interested in getting into you know retail politics. So that alone almost made me a shoe-in for you know going and working up there. Had I run as Republican, they would have wanted nothing to do with me. And Jeff, so, this really drives home uh, a point that has inadvertently become a, a recurring theme on this show uh, that we, we mentioned recently. It's, it's this idea that so many people are out there are, are afraid to fail at something, whether it's starting a podcast. Uh, I mean, you might even yeah. argue my first that 15, 20, I don't know, whatever number of podcast episodes were failures in a sense. They didn't have huge numbers. Uh, I listen to them now and I kind of cringe because I was so new at it, but I had <laughs> to create those less than stellar podcasts to get to a better one, to become a better interviewer. And you had to run a, you know, I guess by normal political metrics, unsuccessful political campaign and that you didn't win. I, I think you got, found success in other ways through it. But the point being, uh, you know, a failure, a, a small failure in one event is is not necessarily a failure in life or a failure in the grand scheme. And it can actually become one of the building blocks to later success in other ways. Many, many of which were in ways that you didn't imagine uh, with that initial project. Mark. Yeah. Again, nailing it, man. I, 
if I think generally speaking, if anyone out there listening wants to do something big in life, you have to be willing to put yourself out there and you have to be willing to fail. And I, you, you had to put a different spin on it, right? It's failing isn't a negative thing. Failing is an opportunity to learn some shit. And usually the bigger the failure, the more potential you have for learning something, you know, really, really uh, helpful or useful through that failure. So, yeah, I failed a bunch in life, man. Oh, my God. Over and over and over again. But I, I, at least I tell myself I'm learning from each one. So that's good. Right. Jeff, in a minute, we're going to talk a little bit about your work with the Austin Peterson campaign. But first, I need to take a minute out to tell our listeners about another great podcast. We are Libertarians. Now, if you're a fan of this program, which I assume you are, if you're still listening at this point, I'm very confident you're going to enjoy the work that Chris Spengel, Greg Lentz, and all the other co-hosts are doing over at We Are Libertarians. These guys blend humor and intelligence to explain to you all the crazy stuff that is happening in the world today and how we can fix it and try to filter those events through libertarian views. It's kind of like listening to friends, hanging out and drinking beer while talking politics. Very similar to a lot of the roundtables you hear on this program. They cover current events every single week from a libertarian perspective. It's like meet the press with all, all those stuffy politicians. Go ahead and check them out at wearelibertarians.com. You can also find them on every podcasting platform, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find these guys. Again, that's We Are Libertarians. They have the Mark Claire seal of approval. Now, how did you specifically uh, get hooked up with the campaign of Austin Peterson? How did he catch your eye and how did you get on there as his campaign manager? I, this is this is this is just fate. I think more than anything, it was just fate. I my my current business partner and I, Justin Phillips, we were exploring, we were toying with this idea of starting our own thing last maybe November this past November and December comes around. Well, we'd been touring with it for a few months, I guess, prior to that, but we started getting serious. We started thinking seriously about it in November. And then we got, we, I had a mutual friend uh, with Austin who was working for him at the time. And I'm not sure how I got in touch with her because we hadn't, we hadn't talked for a while, but uh, long story short, it, you know, Austin had just launched his campaign, I think in November. And, you know, she was telling me that he needed support and I was telling my potential future business partner that, hey, we might have a potential client here. And he just so happens to be running for president. And he and he and I, my business partner and I were both like, well, how about this? Let's start the company if we get the client. <laughs> we were like, all right, that, that makes sense to me. So over over a meeting of beers and then a few phone calls, you know, it might have taken about three weeks. We got Austin on board and then we decided, OK, well, now immediately we have to open up, uh, open up you know, our doors and we'd filed all the paperwork and, and did everything. And I think it was the first week of January, we flew out to Kansas city to get his campaign up and running from a, from an accounting and, and compliance standpoint. That's initially what we were doing for that campaign. We were doing FEC uh, campaign finance stuff. Yeah. But our first campaign, our first client was a presidential candidate who almost, you know, almost got it. Damn it. So, so that, close. That's pretty cool though, that, that, that you're, this organization was kind of formed with, with the intent, with Austin Peterson almost. I mean, at, he was almost the, the inspiration, I guess, in a way that you were able to land this guy as your first client. I mean, that, that's pretty huge. But, well, if you think about it, you know, if he had, if Austin hadn't decided to run, then it's very possible I slash my business partner and I would not have decided to start this company. So how nuts is that, man? 
Yeah, that's crazy. Now, what 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 sort of uh, lessons did you take from the Austin Peterson 2016 campaign? I think when he announced, first made his announcement for president, a lot of people might have just brushed him off as oh that that trolley guy on the internet. I mean that yeah. I mean yeah. uh, not much more. And I'd spoken to Austin before, and and even myself. I mean, I have disagreements with Austin Peterson. I, I had him on the show before. We didn't agree on everything, but even just in my first interview with him, I did find him to be a much more thoughtful person than uh, maybe I initially had thought from just seeing him. You know making comments on Facebook here and there. And, and I think in a way there's kind of a, a wicked genius to his approach because maybe the whole reason I've heard of Austin Peterson before that is because he was uh, seen as a sort of an internet troll. So it's, it's kind of a circular <laughs> argument to, to see, you know, which, what, what's the proper method to introduce yourself to people, but whatever that is, he certainly did it. And he was able to take that and really inspire a lot of people. You, you can't be denied that he inspired a large amount of people to participate in the libertarian party. He came in a very strong second place. Anybody that was watching the convention coverage or was at the convention coverage can attest to the fact that there was a loud vocal, uh, passionate contingent of Austin Peterson supporters there. So, I mean, well, first of all, I guess, what, what do you attribute the uh, Austin's ability to just, I guess, get so many people involved and engaged in politics to? Great question. First and foremost, he's a good dude. I mean, I think, I think that's, that's it. First and foremost, he's just a good dude. Now, I didn't know that, you know, when we first met him, when, when we first uh, started working with him, you know, we were, we were, my, my business partner and I were, we were watching, we were, we were providing compliance support and we were watching and we kind of stayed on the sidelines for a few months, just kind of watching. But, uh, we watched him build and, and organize and communicate as well. That's another thing that he does just extraordinarily well is he is, 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 is a phenomenal communicator, uh, whether it's in person or through a live stream or in a debate, he, he can just articulate his points so well. And, Libertarians are certainly not known for that. So, uh, being able to communicate and message including effectively, including maybe our current libertarian candidate, but we don't need to go too deep on that. Yeah, no comment. <laughs> no comment on that. That's probably the safe way to go for you. Yeah, yeah. So he he's just he's a good dude. He he was he's a smart smart guy too. I mean, you don't you don't start from nothing and nowhere in November, you know, on your laptop in your living room, and then six months later, five months later, you know, you've got a national campaign under you with, you know, with thousands and thousands. I mean, shit, I think he just crossed a hundred thousand supporters likes on Facebook for his, for his page. And that, I think that went from like, you know, 9,000 or 4,000 to a hundred thousand in six months. I mean, he, he's, he's passionate. He's a good dude. He's sharp. He could, he built his organization very effectively. And then, you know, of course he brought me on. Uh, so that was a really good play on his part too. <laughs> and what role did you play in the Peterson campaign? How were you able to take what he had already started on his own, really getting people involved and passionate about the ideas of liberty and passionate about his campaign? How were you able to sort of double down on that and, and get it more organized and get more people directly involved in the in the party politics side of things, which really, at the end of the day, that's what you got to do to win this libertarian nomination, to win the nomination of any party. You've got to influence people within the party, influence those delegates. And second only to Gary Johnson was Austin Peterson's campaign in doing so. Yes. Yeah, we came close. huh? But uh, yeah, no cigar. Well, first, I would say, so just a real quick timeline, you know, Evolt started out just providing compliance support in January. We were I, we slash I was kind of advising him by by just kind of mid-March, maybe late March into April. We were just getting more sort of involved with the campaign. And then by mid-April, I went to him and, and, and said, you know, Austin, you got a shot here. Like, no shit. You, you have a shot to win this nomination. I'm not saying it's a great shot, but you have a shot 
you've got eight million things you need to accomplish between now and convention, you know, the convention in Orlando, you know, I would really like to come on board uh, in a much more active way. And actually, the initial deal was that I was I was going to take over as campaign manager after they won the nomination, after Austin won the nomination. But it just became really clear uh, not too long in. I was kind of playing a senior advisor role, and it just became super clear that that I needed to come in even more so and just and just get more hands on. But he had a phenomenal team put together already. You know, he had a lot of people and and good good people in good spots that were doing some great work. He just he just needed. Uh, you know, someone that had some political experience, frankly, to come in and kind of help, kind of help, you know, mold it and and kind of get all the herded cats, you know, going in the same direction. Obviously, we're libertarians, so we're all it's like herding cats. But um, maybe a great team. He just you just need a little bit of help, kind of pushing it in the right direction. And uh, we did everything we could, man. We pushed and pushed and pushed. We probably, you know, I, I people are going to disagree with this, but you know, I think if we had maybe another month, we could have pulled it out. A month of prep. So you want to talk about lessons learned? Uh, start early, <laughs> right. well, you know, start I, thinking about, start thinking about it a year or two out, right? Don't just, you know, think, Oh, I want to run for office this cycle and, and just dive in. Yeah. And I don't want to presume anything, but you know, potentially you now have a, a four year head start on the next go around. So, you know, might, <laughs> it might just be laying the groundwork for the future here. Jeff, one more thing I want to ask you, just if there's any libertarians out there, heck, not even libertarians, maybe just principled people that get inspired to run for office, what it would be your just most important piece of advice to them. The most important piece of advice you can give to somebody who's on the fence, wants to run for office, but something's just holding them back. Yeah. There's so much, right? I, maybe the most important thing is, is to make sure you know why you're doing it. I, you made the point earlier about, you know, some people just want to be a congressman or some people want to advance their careers or some people want to do X, Y, and Z, you know, fine. But we've got enough of those people in office already. We have enough of those people in Washington. We have enough of those people at state, local office. Be different. Know why you want to do this. And if it's for good reasons and they're moral and ethical, then basically just say, fuck it. Forgive me for using bad language, but basically just say fuck it. Like, like stick your neck out there, give it your best shot. To Mike, you know, to Mike Pickens' point, be prepared to run a few times or three times. Right? Don't just think it's one race. But if you're in it to move the needle and you're in it, you know, to to do the right thing, then you got nothing to lose, man. You got nothing to lose. There's always going to be haters. There's always going to be haters. Doesn't matter how perfectly you do anything, people are always going to hate. Block that shit out. Just if you believe in it, if you know this is what you want to do, take the risk, you know, throw caution to the wind and just dive in and, and maybe give someone like me a call and, and, you know, we can help you along the way. All right, Jeff. Well, I'll let you finish up with that. Why don't you let everybody know exactly how they can get in touch with you, how they can find your business and any other thing you want to plug, feel free to plug away. Hey, thanks, Mark. And again, thank you so much for having me on. This is actually a lot of fun. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Okay. Evoltconsulting.com that you can find out all about uh, our company there. Uh, you can email me at jeff at evoltconsulting.com. And if you guys want to take a look at uh, some of our libertarian clients right now, Alex Merced, who's running for Senate up in New York, uh, he's a badass, man. I'm really excited about that race. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And Lily Tang out in Colorado, she's not a client yet, but uh, I think she might be soon. And, and, and regardless, she's a badass. So if you're not, Al- if you're not paying and- attention to that race. Alex and Lily are both people I've had on this program, and I just recently officially endorsed Alex Merced for U.S. Senate. So uh, I think both of those people are great candidates to look into. Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. Jeff, take care. I really appreciate the time and best of luck in the future. Roger that. You too, bud. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Jeff Carson. 
a great story, a great guy. Now, how did he get to where he is today, helping Liberty candidates with the political process? He didn't do it by going to a four-year college to get a degree in political science. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with going to a four-year college. Heck, I did it myself. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with getting a political science degree. One of our great contributors, Rico, he's got a political science degree. But the point is, there isn't necessarily a, a script to how you get anywhere in life. Now, Jeff traveled the world. Jeff went around the world seeking answers, seeking answers to a lot of the questions he had. And maybe he didn't get all the answers, but what he did get by traveling around the world was he got a lot of new perspectives. And those other perspectives can really open your mind, shift your paradigms, perhaps, like I discussed with Robin Kerner a few episodes ago. And that can lead you to greater truths. It can lead you on a different path in life. And then Jeff had the gall to just up and decide to run for Congress. He didn't know what he was doing. But he knew he wanted to make a difference. He knew he wanted to move the needle in a certain direction. So he went ahead and he got involved. And he ran for Congress and he learned a lot. He learned enough that he could start his own business based around this idea, based around the idea of using the knowledge he had learned over the years, both in the military, traveling the world, participating in politics, and help other people with that knowledge. It's not the normal path. None of us take the normal path. Because there's no such thing as a normal path. That's the biggest myth out there, guys, that there's a normal path to doing things in life. There is no such thing. The path is whatever you make it. One day I decided to sit down and record a podcast. I had no idea what I was doing. I hadn't taken a podcast course. I certainly didn't have a four-year degree in podcasting. Now, I do have some experience in television production, and I think that my mind is sort of in tune to producing, to editing. That might have helped, but trust me, listen to episode one. I don't sound that great. (laughs) I don't sound that great. The production isn't that great. I really didn't have a clue. I was piecing things together as I go. But I had to have those rough episodes. I had to do that. There's no way I could have gotten to where I was without doing. There's no amount of learning and taking courses and watching instructional videos, all of which I've done and all of which have helped me along the way. But none of that could even hold a candle to the act of actually sitting down, actually recording and producing a podcast. And that, that applies to anything in life, anything you want to do, whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's starting a new relationship, asking someone on a date. At some point, you got to just do it. And it might go wrong. You might get shot down at the bar, guys. In fact, odds are you're going to get shot down at the bar, most likely. But you got to see what works and you got to hit on a few girls if you're going to get that date ever. It's just an analogy here. I'm happily taken, gentlemen. But I can give a little advice about the subject. You got to do it. You got to put yourself out there in every single arena. That's the message I want to send to you today. And I hope you can send a message to the world for us, a message that says that you love this program, that you enjoy Lions of Liberty. Please, it's you. It's you who can help us grow this program. You can do it in so many ways, mostly by sharing it with your friends and family, shooting them an email. You can share it on your social media. You can find all of our posts at facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty on Facebook to share from there. Find us on the Twitter at Lions of Liberty. And if you want to get more involved in this conversation, we'd love to have you over in our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. You just type that in your little search bar on Facebook. Also, we'll link to it in the show notes for today's show, which you can find at lionsofliberty.com slash 231. And please, please, please subscribe, share, share, 
rate and review this show. Those are the things I need from you guys to continue to expand the show. This show has been growing and growing and growing steadily over the years, and it'll continue to do so as long as the new people that are coming on continue to do what the old people did, which is share the show and tell their friends about it. We're going to keep this conversation going and keep advancing the ideas of liberty right here three days a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday right now, and hopefully even more days a week in the near future. But it's all up to you guys. You're going to get the show that you want, and you're going to get the expansion of the show that you want. It all depends on how much we can grow it together because this is a team effort. That's the way I'm looking at this thing, guys. Don't forget to tune back in this coming Friday for another edition of John Odermatt's weekly look at the criminal justice system with Felony Friday. John has been knocking it out of the park with this show. And then next Monday, I'm going to have another great guest for you. He is the vice chairman of the Libertarian Party, also a current candidate for U.S. Senate, He is Mr. Arvind Vora, and he'll be on the show next Monday. Until then, guys, live long and live free.